The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Creating a Roadmap for Modern Prostate Cancer Treatment, How to Use the Most Recent Evidence on Novel Therapeutic Strategies and Shared Decision-Making to Personalize Patient Care. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerreview.com forward slash XGS. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Hi, my name is Alicia Morgans, and I'm a GU medical oncologist at Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in Boston. Welcome to this educational activity entitled Creating a Roadmap for Modern Prostate Cancer Treatment. I'm really excited to be joined today by my colleague, Dr. Mark Fleming, a medical oncologist at Virginia Oncology Associates and the co-medical director of the Genitourinary Program and chair of the National Policy Board at the U.S. Oncology Network. Thank you so much for being here with me today, Dr. Fleming. Alicia, thanks so much for having me. Look forward to it. Wonderful. So our goal today is to explore recent advances in therapeutic options for patients with advanced prostate cancer and share our experiences in implementing these treatments. Dr. Fleming, can you start us off today by covering the clinical states model and setting the stage? I'd be happy to, thanks. Um, so the clinical states of prostate cancer uh, was originally adapted by Howard Cher, one of my mentors in prostate cancer. And I always like to begin uh, with this because it really sets the stage. And I think uh, when we look at uh, prostate cancer, we look at is the disease organ confined? Unfortunately, there's a group of men where the PSA begins to rise, um, and that can uh, rise initially if they had locally advanced disease, and I refer to it as as the rising PSA uh, hormonal state. Uh, there are men who present with metastatic disease, we call that de novo metastatic uh, disease, and castrate uh, sensitive metastatic disease if they progress to that after having a ri rising PSA, uh, starting them on hormonal therapy. So from the rising PSA state, um, I love that this slide kind of incorporates a new entity that we deal with, what we call oligometastatic disease, and which is defined as a few sites of disease. And I tend to use four sites of less to being kind of my oligometastatic sites of disease. Unfortunately, more men, some men can progress on to castrate-resistant metastatic disease out of the castrate-sensitive metastatic state. Sometimes people refer to it as hormone-sensitive, or the oligometastatic uh, disease state. And the castrate state means that they're on androgen deprivation therapy. And despite being on androgen deprivation therapy, their disease uh, is progressing. And then metastasis with castration post-androgen signaling, signaling inhibitors and docetaxel, uh, which commonly sometimes referred as the post-chemotherapy state. And we'll talk about tonight in terms of making sure we think of the new strategies that are available, uh, such as lutetium. The, the current shortcomings that, that exist in the real world uh, management of prostate cancer and metastatic hormone-sensitive prostate cancer, you know, most patients still receive androgen deprivation therapy um, or first-generation antiandrogen therapies, uh, but we're not seeing the, the genetic testing like we'd like to see in, in patients today. There's, um, we know that genetic testing is important and for both for your family members as well as uh, future treatment strategies. And for metastatic castration-resistant disease, you know, not all men are seeing all the active therapies. And I think you, you and I would agree, Alicia, that we want to make sure that men see all the active treatments that are available uh, that exist. And uh, sometimes men um, get very short durations of therapy despite the many treatments that we have uh, that we see in clinical trial use. And unfortunately, we also continue to see racial disparities uh, uh, in the utilization of all the novel therapies that exist. So I'm going to turn it back over to you, to you Alicia, to kind of expand on the metastatic hormone-sensitive prostate cancer uh, state. Thank you so much, Mark. And, you know, I think that, uh, as you said, there's so much that we're still trying to do in terms of education and ensuring that we are expanding access for the treatment of our patients across all of these disease states. And if we think about that in metastatic hormone-sensitive prostate cancer, I would say that the biggest thing we're still facing in this disease state is that metastatic hormone-sensitive prostate cancer remains incurable. And I think that this is an area that is undergoing active and exciting investigation because as you said, there is this very low volume state 
of oligometastatic hormone-sensitive prostate cancer that we think perhaps may ultimately be curable with some of our multimodality treatment options. But at this point in time, that remains really to be seen. And importantly, survival, we know, is related to the way that patients present and the way that their metastatic disease is distributed, whether it's visceral versus bone versus perhaps lymph node only, or whether the disease is de novo metastatic, which is, of course, a higher risk disease biology than if it's recurrent after treatment of the primary prostate cancer. So really the extent of metastatic disease, the location of metastatic disease, and uh, and the way that these patients either have recurrent disease or de novo metastatic disease help us understand the prognosis and aggressiveness of the metastatic prostate cancer. We do know that intensified systemic therapy with ADT and some other agent, whether that's an AR-targeted agent or perhaps docetaxel chemotherapy, is the standard of care, and ADT alone is inferior in terms of disease control and survival, as well as quality of life. So as I mentioned, there are multiple studies that provide level one evidence that intensified therapy is associated with improved overall survival for metastatic hormone sensitive prostate cancer. Often when we're talking about this, we're talking about ADT and docetaxel, as we can see here from the GTUG15 charted and stampede C arms. But we also mean ADT plus abiraterone or ADT plus enzalutamide or ADT plus apalutamide, as we can see in the center here, Latitude, Arches, Enzymet, Titan, and Stampede G, of course. But we also have to remember that ADT plus radiation in low volume metastatic hormone sensitive prostate cancer is also associated with improved overall survival. And that's radiation of the prostate, which was really quite game changing when we heard about that from the Stampede H arm. Um, it was new information and very much something that we weren't necessarily expecting and is being investigated in terms of whether surgery can cause the same or provide the same improvement in survival with ongoing studies. And finally, most recently we've heard about triplet therapies that seem to improve overall survival, where we had the Aracens data suggesting that ADT plus docetaxel plus darolutamide is associated with improved overall survival when compared to ADT and docetaxel, so an even more active comparator arm. And of course, the PEACE-1 trial, which is a complex design, but which ultimately shows ADT plus docetaxel plus abiraterone seems to improve survival versus ADT and docetaxel alone. So really a lot of information, still questions unanswered, but multiple combinations that suggest improvement in overall survival over ADT alone, which again should not be our standard of care for metastatic hormone sensitive disease. As I said, unfortunately, there's poor adoption of these treatment intensifications. And and, and, you know, I think it's really frustrating sometimes to think about why and how this is happening. There have been multiple studies that really suggest that this is across populations. It's a, occurring in a Veterans Health Administration study. It occurs in steer Medicare populations and, and Flatiron populations of real-world evidence. It even was demonstrated in a Canadian population relatively recently as well. And overall, it looks like about half of patients don't receive these intensified therapeutic approaches, despite this level one evidence. And so I wonder, Mark, you know, we practice in different geographies and in different settings um, and different size practices, of course, although I think your practice continues to grow and I think rivals most of the academic pra practices and in, in how large they are, especially if you count all of the practices that you have across all the geographies in the group. Um, but I'm wondering, what do you think it is that is challenging us as a community of oncology and urology uh, colleagues who are trying to help these patients? What is, what is the main barrier in terms of lack of intensification? Yeah, I think in the, if I'm speaking with my community oncology hat, one of the differences that we see is the multiple um, physicians that are involved in the care um, oftentimes, if uh, someone presents with de novo metastatic disease, they're diagnosed in the hospital and then they get referred to a urologist. And depending upon uh, the urologist's level of comfort with these, these relatively novel therapies, um, they might not be utilizing uh, them. So the uptake, uh, uptake can be a little bit slower sometimes in the community. And 
many urologists are not comfortable of uh, administering some of these therapies. Docetaxel for sure in terms of chemotherapy classically uh, is uh, in the realm of a medical oncologist. And so the use of triplet therapies, I hope, uh, in the appropriate patient is, is, is uh, taken up readily uh, fast. But it's the kind of complexity of these agents and the side effect prof profile. So, um, and you have the doctors dealing in multiple medical records at your institution. Everyone's can kind of see what everyone's doing. I know in our local market, there must be three or four medical records if you include radiation oncology, primary care physicians, urology, and medical oncology. So that's a, an added complexity uh, from that perspective. You know, Mark, that's such a great point. When we don't all share the same EMR or have access through the EMR sometimes allows you to kind of peek in to other practices if they're on the same EMR, that makes, that makes it really hard uh, to understand even what studies have been done and the extent of disease in, in order to get started on therapy, let alone the medications that might be chosen. And certainly we never want to do harm by accidentally adding you know, an, an additional agent when perhaps someone else has already started one. So that's a, that's a hugely important point. I think as we hopefully continue to improve our communication, we'll be able to overcome some of some of those barriers. And I wonder from your perspective, as you've tried to start these different agents, do you have barriers in terms of insurance authorization or something that holds up, uh, you know, getting drug to patients, especially the oral agents? Yeah, I, I'm supported by a wonderful support staff that basically, basically makes my job easier in terms of just thinking about what patients might need and uh, they assist with get, getting patients um, kind of financial um, uh, help in terms of getting free drug uh, in, in cases and just really being a re resource to navigate people through this process. Um, we've taken it out of our hands of my treatment nurses and really kind of have a navigation social work team that really helps me get those. And that's essential in order to provide care uh, now because it's such a complex process and I think later on we can talk about some of the community resources that are available uh, to our patients and I would advocate people taking advantage of all those resources that might be available. I think that's great and we'll definitely talk about that. Uh, I do think, you know, as we think about the growing need for multidisciplinary care and the, the working together of urologists and medical oncologists and bringing in radiation oncologists too for some supportive management as well, or perhaps for low volume patients to radiate the primary prostate, it's really, really gonna be important for us to strengthen those collaborations. And so there are a lot of factors that I think through in terms of really making these treatment decisions with patients, with our multidisciplinary team. I'm sure that you're thinking about a lot of the same ones, Mark. But, you know, I think about cancer-related factors. Is this a de novo metastatic, high-volume metastatic patient where I'm really going to favor in a chemo-fit patient trying to get that patient docetaxel in addition to the ADT and, of course, adding on an androgen receptor-targeted agent in addition to that ADT and docetaxel? What are the treatment-related factors that I need to think about? Are there barriers to me getting certain androgen receptor-targeting agents, intensified oral agents, to patients or not? Are there are there barriers for some agents, but not for others? Um, and what are the expected costs related there for, for the patient who needs to take those drugs? What are the patient-related factors? What are the things I think about in terms of how long this patient is expected to survive with this cancer? Does the patient otherwise have a life expectancy of 10 or 15 years? Or are we thinking about two to three years because maybe the patient has really um, complicated comorbidities or is taking medications that, that are, are expected to try to control another comorbid illness but may or may not actually successfully be able to do that? And what are the drug-drug interactions and, and the overall fitness of the patient? As well as, of course, what are the supports that the patient has when the patient's not in clinic with me which is the majority of the time. And, and what are the ways that, um, that patients staying safe at home, getting back and forth to appointments and all of it. So there are a lot of things that we think about as we're helping to make these decisions. And of course, there are always factors related to the clinician, how comfortable we are with certain medications and approaches that will ultimately be really key to the decision as well. 
So this is sort of a, a simple way to think through it from my view. Um, the first thing I think about is, is this uh, de novo or high volume disease? If the patient's high volume, I really am very keen to give the patient a chemotherapy in addition to their ADT. And based on most the most recent data, if I'm doing ADT and chemotherapy, I'm always gonna try to add on an AR targeted agent in addition to really make that a triplet combination. If the patient has low volume disease, I'm really thinking about ADT and an androgen receptor targeted agent. And I really also am thinking about whether I can radiate the primary prostate. And that's all for de novo metastatic hormone sensitive disease. For recurrent disease, I'm thinking about it pretty similarly, but I have a little bit of a higher bar to meet to give chemotherapy. It does have to be high volume disease in a recurrent patient to give chemo from my perspective. But anytime I'm giving chemo, I'm always adding on that AR targeted agent now based on PEACE1 and Aerosense, uh, as long as that patient can tolerate it. But I wonder, do you want to talk about your PM Sagas mnemonic? I think that's a really nice one to help people think things through. Yeah, um, I, I think it basically kind of uh, captures the things that you uh, approach it with, that uh, PM Saga's uh, P being prior therapy. So did they have local control of their disease? Was it radiation? Was it surgery? Uh, the metastatic sites, you alluded to that you treat a patient differently with lymph node only disease, which by definition in the charter trial was low volume disease, whether th someone has visceral disease um, or high burden disease. Uh, so the metastatic sites is important. To me, which is very important, one of the things I've really stressed with my local urologist is the patient having symptoms of prostate cancer. This is especially true with de novo metastatic disease. We don't just use PSA as the guide to switch therapies, but symptoms of pain, usually in my book equals chemotherapy, so that's something that's important. Androgen indifference, um, um, that's a, um, there's variants of uh, prostate cancer. Uh, I think of aggressive variant, um, are they exclusively visceral metastasis, lytic bone lesions, that's a concerning, um, and bulky tumors, those behave differently. And when we look at those patients, so we might need to treat those differently. Uh, the uh, G is the germline mutation. So as you know, there's two types of mutations. There's germline mutations and the final S, somatic mutations. Germline is what's happening in your family and somatic mutations are what's happening in your tumor. And so I'm a big believer in getting biopsies of those. And uh, the A is AR, um, AR signaling defects, AR7 mutations, which for a while was a real big thing that we were looking at. Uh, I'd be curious, are you still using that uh, today in your treatment of your patients? But if someone has that mutation, we tend to lean more towards chemotherapy. I love that mnemonic. I'm wondering, can you take us through a patient case that you might come across in your, in your practice so that we can think this through? Yeah, so um, this is a case of a 63-year-old man who initially presented with de novo metastatic disease or hormone-sensitive uh, prostate cancer. Um, he, he's active, he's a judge, he's married, a father of two grown children, and his initial PSA was 17, which was surprising, kind of, is this an aggressive variant that he had a higher burden of disease despite a relatively low PSA? We see this in men with Gleason 9, 54 prostate cancer, and his PSA was just elevated with staging. He had uh, node positive disease as well as high burden disease with multiple sites, greater than five bone lesions uh, on, on bone scan. And he had these mildly large uh, pelvic lymph nodes and some subcentimeter uh, hepatic hypodensities, which were too small to characterize uh, from that standpoint. He did not have any significant sim symptoms except the urinary symptoms of getting up at night to urinate. Um, uh, but he presented with metastatic disease, had some comorbidities that I had to think about in terms of diabetes and hypertension. And so he presented to me uh, with the above and, you know, what, what should we do with this, this um, otherwise relatively healthy, active, uh, active judge? Wow. Well, so that's great. I'm, I'm glad to hear he doesn't seem to have a lot of symptoms other than those urinary symptoms, because that's one of the things that immediately drew my attention. He's got high burden disease. And I'm always trying to think about whether I need to get a patient over to radiation oncology for some palliative radiation, uh, in addition to whatever I'm going to do with symptomatic treatment. 
but it sounds like he's really active, like you said. And, and I wonder from your perspective, could he tolerate chemotherapy? Yeah, so he is, you know, getting back to your priorities, um, you know, uh, longevity was very important to him and he wanted to, um, you know, be as aggressive as possible. Uh, and so, you know, uh, chemotherapy was definitely something that we, 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 we strongly considered. And if you were choosing chemotherapy, um, like I said, do you normally do ADT and chemotherapy as a doublet or have you changed your approach given the newest data on P from Peace One and Aracense? Yeah, so, you know, um, I definitely changed my approach. So now, based upon the, those two uh, pivotal studies, if someone I would consider chemotherapy, then I would favor triplet therapy, adding on an additional agent. Let's think about um, just resources for patients. Uh, you know, I think that as we're giving especially more complex treatment therapies or treatment combinations to patients, it's really, really important that we inform them to empower them to understand what they're getting treated with and why they're using a certain approach and really to help them anticipate what some of the side effects might be. And there are lots of online resources for this, but it's important for us as clinicians, I think, to have access to resources that are going to be reputable and are going to be um, things that are really curated and made, made um appropriate for patients and also appropriate in terms of the truth and the, the, the breadth of knowledge that a, a patient might need. So uh, I think you know, some of the, the best places I think about when I think about resources for patients include Zero, which is a, a, um, an advocacy organization that helps to support patient education, patient, patient resources, and certainly even clinical research and, and ongoing funding for, for clinical research. And they have great resources online, as well as the American Cancer Society, Prostate Cancer Foundation, NCCN, um, and even Prostate Conditions Education Council. So there are lots of resources, but finding ones that work for your practice are gonna be really, really important. And just to highlight Zero, which I think is a little bit unique in the advocacy world that they are increasingly trying to directly support patients through some of their advocacy initiatives, in including Zero 360, which is a, 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 a resource that patients can actually call into or engage on the web and get one-to-one -one counseling in terms of financial support, even transportation and other support for medication funding and things. Uh, I think this is a great resource for patients to think about. And here we have the, the website www.zerocancer.org. So think about this as a resource that's available to anyone and I think can be really, really helpful for patients. Now, as we think through some of the data, just to remember some of that, the charted trial and the stampede docetaxel arm really suggested to us and demonstrated uh, with multiple studies, as you can see here, that ADT plus docetaxel was going to be more effective in terms of improving over, overall survival than ADT alone for patients with metastatic hormone sensitive disease. And the majority of patients in the stampede trial had de novo metastatic uh, hormone-sensitive prostate cancer. It was a, a portion of patients in charted. And I would say that charted was also broken down by high volume and low volume. And that's where we got the understanding that high volume patients seem to be better helped by or benefit more from ADT and chemotherapy um, than perhaps low volume patients do. Stampede had a pretty consistent effect in their population, and we think probably that's because the majority were actually de novo metastatic, which is also this poor prognosis uh, setting where we think that chemotherapy may play a, a really important role. We also saw that ADT plus abiraterone was associated with improved overall survival versus ADT alone in the latitude trial, which looked at high risk patients, as well as the stampede trial, which again was this sort of majority de novo metastatic population. And we also saw that this was really confirmed in long-term analyses that continued for follow-up over five years. In addition, we saw in the Titan trial that ADT plus apalutamide was associated with improved overall survival versus ADT alone. And in the Arches and Enzymet trials, we saw that ADT plus enzalutamide was gonna be associated with improved 
overall survival versus control. In the Arches trial, that was ADT and placebo. And in the Enzymet trial, that was ADT plus nilutamide, flutamide, or bicalutamide, so an even more active control arm. Enzymet also included a large number of patients who actually had docetaxel thrown in there as well. So really a complex trial, but ultimately both showing that ADT and enzalutamide was a helpful combination for metastatic hormone-sensitive disease. So as we think about this, we, we talked a little bit about doublet and triplet patients, uh, doublet and triplet regimens for patients. And I wonder, Mark, can you give kind of a one-liner, who do you give triplet therapy to? Uh, de novo metastatic symptomatic patients uh, are, are, are the patients that I tend to give. And anyone with visceral, uh, visceral metastasis, a liver, um, liver lung uh, disease, uh, and depending upon their level of symptoms, you know, if you have uh, um, metastatic disease to bone only, uh, those would be the ones I do. I tend not to do it in patients who have a lymph node-only disease unless it was bulky lymphadenopathy. And that, that makes sense. Those are going to be low-volume patients. Who do you think about giving um, ADT plus an AR-targeted agent with or without radiation to the, to the prostate? It's my patients with lymph node-only disease, uh, asymptomatic, which is a big kind of differentiator for me, and patients who are elderly who um, I want to kind of hold off on chemotherapy. Uh, there is some appeal to using less cycles of chemotherapy, um, you know, with this upfront with six, but I tend to, if I can avoid having to give chemotherapy and use it later, then uh, I tend to do that. And we hope for you know, agents like lutetium uh, that might be very uh, better tolerated, waiting for those trials that are evolving to see if we can use those things earlier. I do often use that now for patients. Uh, there's such an excitement around the recently approved lutetium that if we do uh, uh, chemotherapy up front, you really meet the criteria with triplet therapy to use lutetium kind of or earlier in the kind of the as a patient who kind of walk through having chemotherapy and the, um, the AR-targeted drug. So I think that's a big plus of using triplet therapy up front. That's a, that's a great point. And especially for some of my younger fit patients who are kind of trying to decide, do I want to get chemotherapy now? You know, many of them do because they feel like they're going to feel healthier now. They might want to get it out of the way when they can do six cycles rather than in the metastatic CRPC setting when they might do 10. And like you said, getting through triple therapy with ADT, docetaxel, and an AR-targeted agent really kind of checks all the boxes for you to then get lutetium when you have progression of disease. And for a lot of people, that's um, it's a goal they never wanted to have in life, but it is a goal now that they have advanced prostate cancer to try to have access to that drug because it does seem to be pretty well tolerated and highly effective. So, so um, agree. Thank you for, for talking that through. So let's just kind of summarize some of these trials from a doublet trial perspective. If you're only going to feel comfortable or your practice is only able to support you adding just one thing to ADT, make sure that it is an AR-targeted agent. This can be done for the majority of patients. Almost no patients should be getting ADT alone at this point in time in 2022. So we know that ADT and those androgen receptor targeting agents prolong progression-free survival. They improve quality of life and improve pain control. They have better toxicity profiles than certainly complications of the cancer and so can maintain quality of life, they improve overall survival. So all of these things we know and they're positive. We also know for docetaxel, this is gonna be helpful for patients with high volume disease. It's gonna be helpful for patients with de novo metastatic disease. It does get it out of the way sooner rather than later with fewer cycles rather than what we might use in the metastatic CRPC setting. From a cost perspective, it is certainly less expensive than some of the copays can be for some of those oral agents. And if we wanna use them together, if we have a chemo fit patient, use them together. So let's just look at some of the data Piece one is a phase three trial that included de novo metastatic castration sensitive uh, or hormone sensitive prostate cancer patients. They were randomized in a somewhat complex way to standard of care with uh, abiraterone, standard of care alone, standard of care plus radiation or standard of care plus radiation and abiraterone. And standard of care often included docetaxel and it was mandated after a certain point. 
primary endpoints here were radiographic progression-free survival and overall survival. And what we found is that in the docetaxel-treated uh, patient population, those patients who had ADT plus docetaxel, those who had ADT plus docetaxel plus abiraterone had improved radiographic progression-free survival than ADT plus docetaxel alone. And that was with or without radiation. The radiation data is not yet mature. PIECE-1 also found an improvement in the overall survival of the overall population, as we can see here. Um, and uh, we can also see that there was an improvement in that ADT docetaxel population to the addition of abiraterone to ADT and docetaxel versus ADT uh, and docetaxel alone. RSNs was a little bit of a cleaner trial. Metastatic hormone sensitive patients, a majority here were de novo metastatic and patients were randomized one-to-one -to, -one to receive ADT docetaxel plus darolutamide versus ADT plus docetaxel alone and were followed for a primary endpoint here of overall survival. What we can see in this diagram is that patients had an improved overall survival with the addition of darolutamide to ADT and docetaxel versus ADT and docetaxel alone. And the hazard ratio here is 0.68. So that is a 32% reduction in the risk of mortality here associated with the con this triplet combination. And the FDA did approve the triplet, uh, the, the darolutamide portion of that triplet for metastatic hormone sensitive disease in, in the setting of ADT and docetaxel in August of this year. And secondary endpoints also showed that this triplet was associated with longer time to CRPC and longer time to pain progression. Enzymet, another complicated uh, study, these patients received ADT plus docetaxel for some of them, but at least ADT plus enzalutamide versus ADT plus docetaxel, plus or minus docetaxel, I should say, plus nilutamide, flutamide, or bicolutamide. And they were followed for a primary endpoint. And here you can see the overall population. So standard of care plus enzalutamide was associated with improved overall survival versus standard of care plus nilutamide, flutamide, or bicolutamide. And when we look at subgroups, we can see that the low volume subgroup seemed to benefit pretty dramatically, which is really important. Overall, of course, there was a benefit. There is a little less clear benefit in, in certain populations, but in general, we know that the addition of enzalutamide to standard of care was associated with a pr improved overall survival versus uh, standard of care plus nilutamide, flutamide, or bicolutamide. So we've gone through a lot of data. There's a lot of information on the doublets. There's a lot of information on the triplets and some of the triplet data is a little bit complex. So I think we as a field are still learning and some of these studies still have data to report out including radiation data from piece one and maybe some longer term follow-ups from some of the others. But what does this data really suggest to you, uh, Mark? What are you most comfortable doing? Again, symptomatic patients, uh, uh, I favor chemotherapy, triplet therapy, um, which might vary then, you know, I don't favor giving someone radiation therapy and then starting them on a, a doublet therapy. I favor chemotherapy uh, and, and a, a darolutamide or abiaterone based upon the, the triplet evidence. I think it also shows that drugs like uh, flutamide, nilutamide, and biclutamide really don't have a role uh, these days in uh, advanced prostate cancer hormone sensitive disease. You might start them off to block the flare um, uh, initially, but I personally prescribe those drugs for 14 days only just so I can get them started and, and get them started on androgen deprivation therapy. But they really don't have a role based upon uh, efficacy uh, in uh, um, uh, 2022 hormone sensitive prostate cancer patients. I would absolutely agree. Um, are there any safety points that you wanted to mention with the triplet? How have patients tolerated that in your clinic? Yeah, patients tolerate it very well, and I think uh, I think one of the things of real life care and um, as well uh, differing from um, clinical trial is uh, for docetaxel. One of the things that we worry about is neutropenic fever. You know, for patients, uh, we have the ability, uh, typically in the uh, community setting, to offer growth factor support. So. I can't recall the last patient that was admitted to the hospital for neutropenic fever. Uh, I, I just can't remember. It's been so long. I think the things I think about is their comorbidities. Uh, patients with um, 
with uh, diabetes, I might steer a little bit further away from adding prednisone with abiodarone from prednisone. I think um, the, the doublets can add a little bit of elevated blood pressure, but rarely do I have to add on additional agents. And again, and you're, you're highlighting the data showed that it, these, these agents do a great job of getting pain under better control. And so with, when you add chemotherapy uh, to those regimens. So uh, I, I factor in symptoms being a big play, and I usually can manage the side effects. You have to think of the neuropathy uh, for someone who has, for, for docetaxel. So that might be something as pre-existing diabetes with some neuropathy. That might be something I have to keep in mind. So when we think of you know, quality of life um, for, for these prostate cancer patients, I think what we're seeing with these trials that um, with both doublet and triplet therapy that they maintain quality of life. So what do we do with, with my, uh, my, my judge uh, patient? Well, he um, actually got treated as per the ARCHES uh, data. Uh, so he was treated several years ago and he uh, got docetaxel times six cycles, and then he was maintained on enzalutamide and tolerated enzalutamide very well for a long period of time, um, was, was working actively, uh, traveling, uh, riding his motorcycle, just, doing, just really enjoying uh, the quality of life and riding his bicycle, the things that he enjoys to do. And so it uh, was a very good uh, a story that he got chemotherapy and then followed by enzalutamide. Now, I would probably do it all at the same time concurrently as opposed to sequentially. But still a, a, a fantastic outcome for him and, and, uh, and I think a great way to think through um, some of the different ways that we can give triplet therapy because some patients can't tolerate the AR targeted agent and the docetaxel together. Perhaps that's you know LFT issues or, or some other reason, uh, but we can still try to get all these drugs into patients when they're still in that hormone sensitive setting. So just to kind of round out our take-home points, ADT intensification for patients with metastatic hormone-sensitive prostate cancer is the current standard of care. ADT alone is not an option for the majority of patients any longer, or we are under-treating our patients. For de novo patients, for high-volume patients who are chemo-fit, um, if they are fit for docetaxel, ADT docetaxel plus abiraterone and prednisone or darolutamide is a standard of care. Um, we can also, based on the Enzymet trial, try to, or even the Arches trial, add on enzalutamide in that, in that as well if, if we would like to do that. For patients who are unfit for docetaxel, ADT and an androgen receptor signaling inhibitor, that is the combination that is the standard of care for high volume de novo disease. For de novo low volume disease, this is gonna be at least ADT plus an androgen receptor signaling inhibitor. And radiation to the prostate is also recommended for patients with low volume disease. Actually, whether that's de novo metastatic or recurrent if the patient has not already had some sort of radiation to the pelvic bed, but most of those patients already have. So we should always discuss uh, triplet therapy for patients who are young, fit, and who are interested in being more aggressive. And there are some low volume patients where that might be the right choice. And so that's a conversation that we can have. Um, but I, as we said, usually we're doing that much less often for low volume patients. For these relapse patients, if they've never had any radiation in the pelvis and you think there's a local control reason to do that, that, that is an option. But generally we're gonna be really focused on, um, on using systemic therapies to intensify here and to try to get the best outcome. So great, um, great to talk through all of that. Let's shift to the MCRPC setting where we really have lots of strategies and ways that we think about approaching patients. We wanna really make sure we're switching mechanism of action and giving the, the opportunity for these novel mechanisms of action to have some efficacy against the cancer. Um, chemotherapy beyond docetaxel is, is usually what we're focusing on here, unless the patient has not had docetaxel before, but that would be cabazitaxel if we need a second line chemotherapy. We also have radioligand therapy, PARP inhibitors for appropriate patients, checkpoint inhibitors, predominantly pembrolizumab, that's where the data is. Um, and, and so these are some of the main things. We of course have other Cipilucel-T, Radium-223 as well. So lots of options for patients in 2022 in MCRPC. So let's talk about it. There, there are so many options. What do you think some of the biggest challenges are in sequencing when you think about these patients in your clinic, Mark? 
Yeah, and it goes to my uh, PM sagas that, you know, you need to look at their prior therapy. So that's the first thing I want to know. What treatments have they seen? What mechanism of action have the patients seen? And that's really kind of determines their, the, the, the sequencing that you're going to use uh, thereafter, especially with metastatic castrate-resistant uh, uh, prostate cancer. So, and I discuss the options, and I lay out, this is your, um, you know, range of treatment options. And I think that uh, you believe, it, like myself, the more treatment options that you see with these life-prolonging therapies, the better. And so um, um, th that is kind of what we need to do is try to expose patients to as many life-saving treatment options as, as possible. As I think about ways to help patients know what's going on, I, again, I just want to refer to these patient advocacy groups and the resources that they have that are really vetted both by physicians and by patients to make sure that the information is accurate and also it's really digestible. Um, and Zero again, has some, some great references there. The, um, the Us2 support groups that used to help patients in support groups as a, as a unique entity actually merged with Zero, And so now is, is performing those support groups within the, Zero, the context of Zero, the, the same support groups, but it's all just one big family now. So that's important to recognize too. And those support groups can be so helpful. Mark, do any of your patients participate in support groups? Yes, uh, they do, and locally we have the Hampton Roads Prostate Health Forum in addition to Zero, and we collaborate with Zero uh, all the time, so it's been wonderful. Wonderful. All right, so can you tell us a little bit about MCRPC and, and dig into the CARD trial? Yeah, I, I love the CARD trial because it, it answered a question that I was seeing in real life clinically. I, I was seeing that patients oftentimes, again, Patients get referred to me after they had been uh, seen oftentimes by the urologist and ma uh, uh, managed that I was seeing patients getting, um, you know, sequenced from um, two AR targeted drugs, abiaterone followed by enzalutamide, as guess where the data is, or enzalutamide followed by abiaterone. Uh, I was seeing them not having as a great a benefit. So the CARD trial really answered that question of when is it appropriate to use if someone has been on docetaxel um, as well as been on an um, androgen receptor targeted agent. And so it randomized patients one-to-one -one between cabazitaxel at a higher dose uh, that we often use uh, 25 milligrams per meter squared um, and uh, versus what the, whatever they didn't see, abiaterone and zalutamide. And if you look at it, from both an overall survival perspective, as well as an image-based progression-free survival perspective, cabazitaxel sequence after what I think a switch mechanism really showed a benefit uh, from that standpoint. So it answered what I had been seeing clinically. When you look at quality of life and safety data, it showed an improved pain response. Again, patients, chemotherapy is great for, for, for pain control. Uh, 45% versus 19%, and they had a longer time to pain progression when you compared it to the, the AR-targeted uh, therapy, and the time to skeletal-related events were all kind of significantly de uh, delayed. And when you look at the side effect uh, profile, again, you didn't see a lot of major differences and it, uh, kind of what's to be expected of using these uh, agents. So again, to me, it really showed that um, when you sequence these going from an AR-targeted drug after someone's been on docetaxel, AR-targeted drug, this gives you the data that you probably would benefit the patient the most by switching the mechanism to chemotherapy and not um, exhausting your treatments with um, two AR drugs uh, and then going to chemotherapy. And so this is the kind of the prostate cancer therapeutic landscape. I literally hand out this uh, sheet of paper for all of my prostate cancer patients. It's how I walk through the treatments. It has rising PSA. It has hormone sensitive disease that we talked about. All of the kind of six treatment options that we have. It has the non-metastatic cachet resistant prostate cancer, the approvals of apalutamide, enzalutamide, and darolutamide. It looks at first line therapy and it has I'm gonna to try to expose you to all these treatment options as possible. And again, I tend to look at the prior therapies and it's really the kind of how I 
uh, approach that and I'm going to try to use as many treatment options as possible. And I put the little caveat in there that lutetium, which we're going to talk about in a little bit greater detail, that it was approved after an AR-targeted drug and chemotherapy. So this is my clinic. I hand this out about 15 times a day to patients and their family members as I walk through the therapies. Wonderful. Well, can you walk us through, we have an, another case, a 63-year-old gentleman with MCRPC. So this is uh, a continuation of, uh, of our patient. So his PSA had a great response to docetaxel followed by enzalutamide, but then his PSA began to rise uh, in a short period of time. It's a 6.29, and we got his uh, CT scan. Uh, they didn't show any changes, no uh, evidence of involvement in, with the liver, but his bone scan started to show two new lesions, and that is one of the criteria that says, hey, they're progressing, his PSA was rising, he um, had two new lesions, and really at this point, um, since he had been on enzalutamide, the treatment options would be radium-223, um, cabazitaxel, or abiaterone, and, um, and I, I, I chose cabazitaxel basically uh, based upon the CARD data, that that is why I went cabazitaxel in terms of my treatment options, that's of course after I did genetic testing on the patient to, because all men with metastatic prostate cancer should get um, uh, testing, and this is prior to lutetium being available, um, uh, I, I chose cabazitaxel. Yeah, I, I think that I, I would have done the same thing that, that you did. I think that many patients would make that choice and now with lutetium being available, some may make a different choice, but this is a really good choice and, and expected to be a really effective therapy. Can you tell us a little bit about lutetium? Yeah, we're all very excited about lutetium. Uh, lutetium PSMA 617 is a radioligand therapy, and it binds to PSMA or prostate-specific membrane antigen once you've had a PSMA PET scan, which are now available, becoming more available. And it has um, that cell membrane with high affinity, and the uh, lutetium PSMA 617 gets brought into the prostate cancer cell, and it causes the prostate cancer cell death and neighboring uh, cell death. It's just a wonderful depiction of how that is done. There are two definitive trials. One was the phase three uh, vision trial, lutetium PSMA 617, plus best standard of care and metastatic castrate resistant prostate cancer. It showed two, two big uh, uh, points. It showed an improved overall survival compared to standard of care, which was a doctor's dealer's choice, uh, kind of a design of the trial, and also sh showed improved radiographic progression-free survival. And it was, as a result of this, it was uh, approved on March 23rd in 2022. It showed um, ex exposure-adjusted safety analysis was comparable findings in both trials, and it, because of the both primary endpoints being met, superior over standard of care alone. Another trial is the therapy, which was a phase two trial that looked at lutetium PSA 617 versus cabazitaxel and metastatic castrate-resistant prostate cancer, and it compared lutetium versus cabazitaxel uh, it used a dose of cabazitaxel, more commonly used of the 20 milligrams per meter squared every three weeks. And um, it showed uh, patients um, had a superior, one of the endpoints in this was PSMA 50% uh, uh, response rate, so it was superior for uh, PSMA. And it showed patients without progression lasted longer. Patients received lutetium 19% versus cabazitaxel. And the progression-free survival was essentially the same. Um, there was no difference between overall arms uh, at follow-up at three years um, of meeting overall survival. But I think this was a trial that was reported before um, the other previous trial, the vision trial, and it gave us a hint that this was an active agent, which led us to move further. And that's why we have phase three trials. To me, this was a hint that this we should continue to explore from uh, uh, this drug further. We've had access to lutetium where we participated in the expanded access trial. So my patients have been benefiting from this since uh, 2021. I'm curious when, uh, when did you start shifting gears? 
So um, I was fortunate to participate in some of the studies as well, the vision trial, for example, and we have some ongoing studies with lutetium right now. Um, but we started opening to standard of care, I would say, you know, a few months after the approval. We tried to ramp up and have everything in place so we could do it super quickly, but we still needed to make sure that we had the PSMA PET imaging. It had to be gallium-based PSMA PET imaging, um, initially at least per the label. Uh, and, and we had to make sure that we had the nuclear medicine capabilities. And then we also had to put together a tumor board that reviews the PSMA PET scans, reviews the prior therapies, and tries to kind of watch and monitor patients as they're coming through and approve them to, to be in line essentially to get lutetium per standard of care. Because at least at my center, there are so many patients who have already been um, seen in our clinics and who have progression of disease and who are eligible for it. And so we needed them to be you know, in line essentially to get it because there's a limited number of slots each week. And we're also getting after the approval, lots of referrals in to try to get patients where people don't have access in their clinics to, to the drug because it does take that multidisciplinary care, the nuclear medicine, or sometimes a radiation oncologist person who's going to be able to deliver the lutetium. So let's move on a little bit and talk about some other personalized medicine. Those radioligands that we just talked about or that radioligand was really targeting PSMA. And we have other treatments that can target some genetic abnormalities or mutations that patients can develop or may have been born with. And that's where we need to talk about germline and somatic genetic testing. Germline testing, of course, is understanding what genetic mutations may be present in a person in their germline and what they inherited, what they share with their brothers and sisters, what they may pass on to their children. Somatic mutations are those mutations that are only going to be present in the prostate cancer that develop and evolve within the cancer tissue itself. And so both of these are opportunities for us to identify mutations and potentially target those mutations with, with drugs. Importantly, we have to do the testing in order to identify patients who may be eligible for treatment. And it's important for us to talk to patients about the process, make sure that we allay fears and talk about the implications, whether it's for therapeutics or for family counseling, because that can be a little bit different for these two different approaches. So it's really important for us to do both of these tests because about half of the targetable uh, mutations are going to be identified in germline testing and about half in somatic testing. For germline testing, this is gonna be recommended for any patient who has metastatic prostate cancer. So at the time of hormone-sensitive metastatic prostate cancer, and if you haven't already done it, certainly by the time patients re reach metastatic CRPC status. And certainly for patients who have localized disease that is high risk or very high risk, it is also recommended or for patients with intermediate or, or even lower risk disease who have a very strong family history, it is going to be recommended to do germline genetic testing. Somatic tissue testing is a little bit more complicated because germline testing, of course, is done either by saliva testing or by a blood test, but somatic test testing is done on tissue. So this can be from a biopsy of a new metastatic site, or it can be from the primary prostate tissue. And for many men, uh, this can be complicated because if they don't have really prostatectomy tissue to go back to and do the somatic testing, and they only have bone metastatic disease, they may not have tissue that's really easily accessible and expected to have high yield in somatic tissue testing. What we can do are liquid biopsies, and these days I think we are learning more and more about this approach. So these are going to be most effective when patients have disease that is progressing rather than really being controlled by the therapies that we have. So if PSA is rising, patients have high volume of disease, this will be a more effective way to, to test for somatic mutations. Um, we also have to rec recognize that there are going to be certain alterations that may be really false positives. And these are particularly uh, alterations that we might identify in these liquid tests um, that are identifying ATM mutations, for example, which tend to have a fair amount of chip that can be interfering in the assays. In any event, these are gonna be really important. And I should mention that particularly in somatic testing, but essentially in both, we are going to wanna look not just for HRR mutations, but we do wanna look for tumor mutational burden and MSI high status, because these things, if the TMB is greater than 10, 
or MSI high, status is high, may give the patient the opportunity to be treated with pembrolizumab. And germline and somatic testing can find mutations in MSH2 or MSH6 or MLH6 that might give the patient the opportunity to have access again to pembrolizumab. So really making sure we do this testing, finding HRR mutations that might make a patient eligible for a PARP inhibitor, or these MSI high status and other alterations that might make a patient eligible for pembrolizumab, it's gonna be really important. So I think it's really important to, to recognize that although these are really critical tests to do and things to investigate, there are challenges. What are some of the things that may be barriers to testing for germline or somatic mutations in your clinic, Mark? Yeah, uh, we've because this is such an important area in prostate cancer and other can, uh, cancers, we actually have a genetic counseling team uh, we have uh, certified genetic counselors, and so I send all my patients with metastatic disease or high-risk disease for uh, uh, genetic uh, testing for looking for the germline mutations. And I've uh, worked with my local interventional radiologist to get tissue testing for metastatic sites of disease. I think you brought out a great point in terms of testing. It's difficult. Bone is a little bit more difficult. Um, uh, uh, than say lymph nodes. So if someone has lymph node only disease, I tend to, to do that. Um, so I try to get, uh, you know, as it evolves, the, you know, somatic mutational testing, I, anytime someone progresses, I try to get a new fresh tissue uh, biopsy if possible. I think that's a, a great way to do it. And certainly the ideal way, if we can get ourselves and our practices into those routines, I think that's the best way to do it. So let's walk through some of the evidence for PARP inhibitors. Um, there are two PARP inhibitors approved for metastatic CRPC. Olaparib was FDA approved based on the PROFOUND trial. And this is approved for patients who have MCRPC, who have one of a number of HRR mutations, including BRCA1, BRCA2, ATM, and, and uh, as I said, a whole host of others, including CDK12, CHECK2, PALB2, et cetera. Um, and this drug is approved after disease progression on an AR-targeted agent. It can be before or after docetaxel chemotherapy. Rucaparib is approved for patients with MCRPC who have a BRCA1 or BRCA2 alteration, and they have to have disease progression on an AR-targeted agent as well as docetaxel chemotherapy. So a little bit different indications here. And Rucaparib was approved in the Triton II phase two trial. So there are other studies that are ongoing because PARP inhibitors, I think, are of very high interest in this field. Um, both of these seem really active in patients who have BRCA mutations. We are trying to investigate whether this might go beyond. Um, but niraparib and telazoparib are also PARP inhibitors that are being actively investigated. There are lots of approaches on the horizon, including various combination treatments in the setting of metastatic CRPC. PARP inhibitors and these next generation hormonal agents like abiraterone have been assessed and we've seen some big data at meetings, including the Propel and Magnitude data suggesting that abiraterone and, uh, and olaparib and abiraterone and, and neuraparib are associated with prolonged radiographic pr progression-free survival in the first line metastatic CRPC setting as compared to abiraterone treatment alone. So really exciting. And this is uh, somewhere that I think we're gonna continue to need to keep our eyes. In addition, there are ongoing studies of PARP inhibitors and immunotherapy and other uh, assessments that are being done with other uh, mechanisms of action, looking at combinations with PARP inhibitors and other approaches. So lots more for us to see. Just to go through the PROPEL data here, we can see this was an MCRPC setting um, and this was all first-line patients and they could have HRR mutations or not. This could include an all-comers population. They could have received docetaxel at earlier stages of disease, so in the MCSPC setting, but not in the MCRPC setting. And patients were randomized to receive abiraterone with or without olaparib. Again, this is an all-comers population. And they were followed for a radiographic progression-free survival primary endpoint. And here we can see the PROPEL data demonstrating this prolonged radiographic progression-free survival to the addition of olaparib with abiraterone um, versus abiraterone alone. And this is such a powerful control arm, abiraterone in the first-line MCRPC setting. So it was exciting to see in an all-comers population that adding olaparib may prolong radiographic progression-free survival. Importantly, I should say that that benefit was most pronounced among the BRCA uh, one and two alteration patients, um, but we will see how that turns out in the overall survival data, which is not yet mature. 
Here's the magnitude data, which is including patients who have, again, first-line MCRPC. This included two cohorts, one that is biomarker selected for HRR mutations, and you can see the panel of HRR mutations here, versus those that are negative, and they were randomized as their individual cohorts to treatment with abiraterone with niraparib versus abiraterone and placebo. The HR negative cohort was stopped for a futility analysis because it did not seem to show that there was a benefit to the addition of niraparib to abiraterone versus abiraterone alone in patients who did not have those HRR mutations. So as we can see here in the biomarker positive population, when we added niraparib to abiraterone, we had a longer radiographic progression-free survival than when patients were treated with abiraterone alone. And this I think is so important because again, abiraterone in the first line MCRPC setting is a highly active control. On the right, we can see the biomarker negative population really without a difference. Uh, and in general, I should say that those patients who had BRCA1 and BRCA2 had the strongest improvement in radiographic progression-free survival with the addition of niraparib to, to abiraterone. So really exciting here. So given these advances in the, the uses of these PARP inhibitors, what are some of the things that you think about just in terms of safety and monitoring, Mark? Both good urologists as well as medical oncologists know how to dose reduce that whatever the quote FDA approved dose is, you oftentimes have to go down in the dose to treat these patients. And you know, here listed some of the side effects, the uh, decreased appetite to diarrhea, um, um, and the creatinine elevation encouraging uh, patients to um, you know, hydrate themselves and again going down in the dose. I have not personally seen, thank the Lord, any MDS or AML. Um, I think you have to be mindful of the pneumonitis and uh, all patients with advanced cancers have to worry about uh, you know, clotting disorders, PEs and thromboembolisms, but you have the ability to go down in the dosing. Great, so, uh, so thank you for running through that. And I, I feel similarly that we can really use these dose reductions to try to help keep our patients on drug and help keep them within active therapy. Uh, you know, there are a number of different clinical trials that are available and, and I know that you've talked about several. How do you talk to patients about clinical trials to make them feel comfortable and enthusiastic about engaging? Yeah, you know, it's it's why I take what I love about oncology is clinical trials. I mean, my my greatest joy is when I can um, we have a trial that we can offer to a patient and getting exposed to new therapies earlier. And so that's the way I look at it is that we, you know, you want to take advantage of getting as many treatment options as possible. And so I talk to my patients all the time about clinical trials. You know, you can get clinical trials not just at academic centers with, with Alicia and, and colleagues, but also in the community setting that um, with through the cooperative groups, U.S. Oncology Network, through Sarah Cannon Research Institute. There are lots of clinical trials uh, available to you close to home. That is a great plug. And there's always clinicaltrials.gov for people who want to look some of them up on their own and bring some suggestions to their, to their clinician or their, their doc in the clinic. So I think, you know, Zero, just to, to plug one more time, Zero does have some information about clinical trials on their website to really help educate anybody who is interested. And they do have certain clinical trials listed there, but can also, through their support staff, help. If you have questions about clinical trials, always send them a, send them a message, ask for some help. I'm sure that they will help you too, but they have some information on their website that might be really, really helpful. Um, and I just want to emphasize too this um, sort of interactive management strategy that we have mentioned multiple times, really including urologists, medical oncologists, um, and radiation oncologists to provide their different skills, as well as primary care doctors, people with expertise in nutrition, physical therapy. There are so many people who touch the lives of patients with prostate cancer, and we do need to think about and in including all of them and really maximizing um, their support because they all have different expertise. Um, and just to mention one more time, this Zero 360 program from Zero, um, which allows patients to call in and get some one-on-one -on -one support. It can be support whether it's related to finding some financial support to deal with co-pays or help with understanding and identifying ways to get to and from the doctor. There are a lot of things that they can help with, and I, I don't think I could even start to list them out, um, but you might be able to find someone who's at least a good listener and can point you in the right direction if you reach out for this support. 
So I just want to say thank you so much, Mark, for joining me today um, and really having such a, a exciting, an exciting conversation about where prostate cancer care has come in the last number of years. It's so exciting. We've seen the evidence that supports the use of numerous approaches for the treatment of our patients with advanced prostate cancer and really thought about and learned effective approaches for integrating them into clinical care. It's important to garner perspectives from all members of the care team, as we've both mentioned, and I thank you so much for joining me here today. Thanks for, thanks for having me so much. Thank you. Well, thanks again, and we hope that you found this inv information and activity really helpful and informative and useful for your practice. This activity is certified by Medical Learning Institute, Incorporated. This activity is developed in collaboration with our educational partner, PVI. Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash XGS. This activity is supported by independent educational grants from Astellas and Pfizer Incorporated, AstraZeneca, Bayer Healthcare Pharmaceuticals Incorporated, Janssen Biotech Incorporated, administered by Janssen Scientific Affairs LLC, Merkin Company Incorporated, Novartis Pharmaceuticals Corporation, and Sanofi.